Well, you know, we've talked about in the past uh, having weddings on agricultural land. Uh, there have been uh, issues with that and there have been changes to uh, the agricultural land, both the uh, reserve and the commission. Uh, but my next guest uh, has been holding the Glow Festival, but uh, it looks as though that festival could hit a roadblock uh, the next time uh, Tamara Jansen and her family want to hold that. And Tamara Jansen joins me on the line now, the founder of Darvanda Nurseries. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Uh, So for people that aren't familiar with the festival in Langley, uh, first maybe explain a little bit, what exactly is the GLOW, uh, the the Christmas and the Harvest Festival? Well, basically um, at at harvest time, we do like a pumpkin patch and a corn maze. It's a real big family event. You can come out and you can wander our beautiful gardens and, you know, just have a great time with your kids and, and, and yeah, just, Enjoy time out in, in the greenhouse and get an idea of what we do here. All right. And what has happened then as far as holding the, uh, the event again this year? Well, basically, we've received a, a letter now from the ALC that's saying that we don't qualify as agritourism which we find absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, uh, there's pumpkin patches and, and corn mazes everywhere. You know, uh, we look at the legislation that we were required to run under. And, uh, you know, it, it talks about ensuring that you have, say, a, a tractors. And so we had a lovely antique tractor from the, the farm museum close by here that the kids could climb all over. We had pony rides, according to the legislation. So we're just we're kind of stumped as to why they're telling us we don't qualify for agritourism. And then they basically said we need to apply for a non-farm use permit. But our challenge is, is um, first of all, you know, we, we can do that. We, we don't agree that we should, but we could do that. But there's just not enough time for us to be able to um, kind of get that all in place without assurances from ALC that we could run uh, you know, coming up, the, the investments to get it ready are just too high. The the displays are, you know, garden displays are, are uh, you know, big investment for us. Oh, yeah. So have you had to have a permit when you've done it in the past? Well, no, because like I say, we, we fit all the legislation that allows for pumpkin patches and, and um, corn mazes and, and all this sort of thing. So from, from what we can see, what our lawyers can see, we fit under the agritourism um, uh, uh, bylaws. So we're, we're just really stumped as to uh, how they came to this decision. So we're kind of like trying to figure out what do we do? We just don't have enough time to get to get through all the paperwork, the bureaucracy that they're saying um, in order to be able to hold it here in Langley in the fall. It's really tricky. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that what struck me is it seems like the, the purpose of the Agricultural Land Reserve and the Commission is to preserve agricultural land. I mean, that seems that that's a part of the mandate. It's to make sure it's not uh, taken out or, or it's continued to u- be used um, for farming. So right. holding this festival, does the festival itself take away land that, that you would otherwise be farming on? No, no, no. We have uh, 20 acres of greenhouse that we, uh, that we farm out of. It's, of course, very expensive to build that greenhouse. So at that time of the year, we actually have less production. In the at spring, obviously, we're bursting at the seams. But, you know, fall and Christmas, we're, we're not utilizing everything. So we took about two acres and we utilized that. It was just space that was available. And we utilized that for the show. And it was just wonderful to bring people in, um, you know, have them see our product you know it's a, what a great way to have people interact with our with our homegrown uh, garden moms or poinsettias and really you know make it a part of their their festive seasons 
Right. So showing showing an entrepreneurial spirit, putting on a community event, uh, exposing people to farming and to, to do all of these things that sound like great things that, that you've been doing. And now it feels like you're being penalized almost for that. Yeah, no, that we're, we're just trying to figure it out. I know recently uh, uh, Lana Popham and, and the NDP put forward something that farmers won't be persons under the new ALC um, legislation. You know, like we're, we're basically losing our property rights as farmers. And, you know, farmers like us, we work hard. You know, we, we don't, nobody gives us anything. And uh, I think that the ALC should actually be helping farmers, which is what I think they were supposed to be doing, as opposed to throwing up bureaucratic, uh, you know, blockades here and there. We'd love to see them help us, you know, help us be creative and make sure that, you know, everybody gets a chance to see the farm and, and that we get a chance to show off our product. Which which sounds completely, it makes complete sense. Uh, one of the, the points, and uh, I know Richard Zussman at Global uh, covered this as well. Uh, in his story about this, uh, he's written saying uh, that the, the ALC received complaints about the festival, that uh, there were other uh, products that were being marketed and that perhaps that uh, was against the rules. Does that make sense? Well, no, to us it doesn't make any sense uh, because you're always allowed a certain amount. Um, the, the, the funny thing is, is when they did come into the, uh, the actual uh, venue to take a look with us, um, they didn't even go into our store. So we're kind of shocked. Like, you know, here we are marketing our stuff and they're suggesting that we're, you know, doing things we shouldn't be doing. Um, but really, they didn't do a very thorough uh, investigation that we could see. Um, but yeah, it's allowed to a certain degree. You'll, you'll notice there's lots of other venues that are also selling stuff on the side. But our own products, you know, at the fall time is the garden moms. We do 100,000 of those or more. And at uh, Christmas is poinsettias. And, and like, that's what we're marketing. We, do, we just don't understand. It's, it is mind-boggling, and, and I'll be completely honest. Uh, my background on one side of my family is, is long-time farmers. They've been farming for more than 100 years, and, and you're right. Farmers work really, really hard. They don't get handouts. They don't, uh, it's not as though anyone's helping them along. It's not uh, uh, something that people do to get rich. Uh, it's something they do because they love it. Uh, it must just seem, and you touched on this, saying, uh, and with this legislation, the, the changes uh, that farmers aren't considered persons anymore, it just, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, for me, it just seems like they are making it so much more difficult to make a go of it and to continue with uh, a lifestyle and a career that is a difficult one. Right, exactly. And you're absolutely right. You don't farm if you don't just love it. (laughs) We were very thankful when our son was willing to to take over the farm. And then we see here, here's these young guns and they're so creative and they've got so much energy and they come out and they, they do all these wonderful things and, I, and the ALC just wants to throw up blockades. Well, that's not the way farming works. Well, this is modern farming. I think they were shocked at the size of our greenhouse. It makes no sense. This is what modern farming looks like. We have greenhouses where we can produce far more than if we were producing the old-fashioned way. Uh, and they've come out and said, or the commission has said that if you apply by April 5th, that there is still, that you could still get everything, uh, the I's dotted, the T's crossed in time for the event. Do you think that's possible? Well, we don't see it possible because our concern is this. We have to invest so much money in the, in the garden displays um, that for us, uh, it's, it's really too late. If we can't have assurances while the process is going, that would be wonderful if, We've asked them, you know, just give us assurances that we'll be able to run, even though the permit process is in place, is moving forward, um, because we can't invest that much and then have them actually shut us down and say, well, actually, no, we're not going to give you the permit. 
So there, if they could give us some assurances, assurances, that would be awesome. But unfortunately, they, they won't. And I think that, that, you know, happens more and more for farmers. They're, you know, basically, you know, told you can't do this by the ALC because the ALC has that power. Exactly. Do you think they have too much power? I think it, I think we need to look at what actually would be helpful to farmers. I think that was the intention originally that the ALC was going to ensure that farming could continue, that local local food sources were available, and I think that they are maybe looking at it from a very old-fashioned way, and they they need to really rethink their position. Right, because as you mentioned before, the bottom line is this festival does not take away from farming. This festival does not take away from food supply, from growing. It does nothing. It enhances what you're able to do. Right, exactly. And there's, you know, what what an awesome way to utilize those those assets that you have as a farmer. I mean, if if you can't utilize them to the maximum, it's very hard to make ends meet. There's no doubt about it. Farming is a, is a tough business. So we'd love to see it that the ALC would start taking into consideration, you know, all these creative farmers that are out there trying to ensure they can keep their farm and live that that farming life. Uh, have you had any uh, reaction then as far as uh, going from here? Uh, I know uh, Ian Payton, who's a liberal MLA, he's also from a longtime farming family uh, in Delta. Uh, have you had any help in that sense or what do you do next uh, in this battle? Well, I know that, the, that the, there's some emergency meetings coming up, so I'm excited about those. Um, I, we have reached out to different ag uh, boards and, and, and entities, for instance, like Flowers Canada. Um, the, the challenge is, is it, it would be very costly to um, to do anything legal in, in regards to ALC to bring them, you know, to, to court on this issue. So at this point in time, we're just kind of hoping that they'll see, you know, their way clear to, you know, consider farmers a little bit more. And, and yeah, in the meantime, <laughs> we're just looking for some solutions. We're kind of excited um, even though things are up in the air in Langley, uh, we're actually expanding GLOW. Um, we had three locations last year. We, we were in Edmonton as well as in Barrie, Ontario. And coming up, we're going to be in 10 cities across across uh, Canada, the U.S., and in Europe. So it's pretty darn exciting. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll keep uh, tabs and we'll keep in touch with you on what happens uh, in Langley. Uh, Tamara, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Well, if you are a driver in this province, if you've had to renew your insurance uh, anytime in the recent, uh, recent, well, recently, you likely know just how expensive it is and what a painful experience that can be on the wallet. And if you heard about this study that was released this past week, that just makes it hurt all the more. Uh, it was a study that was put out by the Insurance Bureau of Canada and it takes a look at the comparison between BC and Alberta, finding that, no surprise here, BC drivers pay up to 60% more for their auto insurance when compared to our neighbours in Alberta. So let's bring in Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Association. And Chris, thanks so much for being back with us today. Thank you for the invite. Uh, thanks so much. A federation, I should have said. Uh, you've talked about no, this before. Okay. <laughs> you've done uh, comparisons yourself. I remember you doing the comparison uh, with the motorhome, I believe it was. Uh, any surprises in the numbers released uh, in this report? Yeah, we weren't actually surprised. Uh, we were actually happy to see this study, though, because it finally backs up what we've been saying with a really nice, easy apples-to-apples comparison 
um, like you mentioned, like we did with the camper. And I think last time when we did the camper comparison, we did Burnaby versus Calgary. It was, you know, a two, uh, year 2000 camper worth about 10 grand for an RV for the summer. And I think it was a thousand dollars difference uh, year over year uh, for insurance. And so now we've got a great apples to apples comparison of things like Toyota Camrys and Honda Accords and Ford F-150s with the very similar population base, same drivers, same driving record, same level of insurance, uh, but way different for costs. Uh, We are getting ripped off here in British Columbia, and we're glad this study proves it. Uh, So I guess one of the things, one of the reasons that uh, that, we're paying more here is ICBC has to insure everybody. Uh, it is the the pr- public uh, insurer. It's not as though they can turn people away. Uh, that was one of the concerns I heard raised about this was the yes, we can compare uh, the two systems. So one of the differences being though in private insurance models, uh, they can tell people, no, you're a high risk driver. Uh, we're not going to insure you or, or they can charge a whole lot more. Uh, whereas here in BC, uh, even the very good drivers uh, were subsidizing the other drivers and everybody gets insured. Insurance. And I find it funny that that is offered as a valid excuse or a valid reason. <laughs> so here we are, the vast majority of us, either excellent or very good drivers. And the best that this state run insurance can come up with is oh, well, what about those absolutely horrendous drivers who otherwise wouldn't be allowed on the road? Don't you care about them? It's a really bizarre argument. And it's actually not that truthful. Because if you go to other provinces, um, I lived in Ontario for more than 15 years. I helped produce and host Open Line Talk Radio. Guess what? There weren't droves of people lining up on the phone line saying, I can't get car insurance because I'm a terrible driver. It's not a plague. This is not a plague in other provinces of people wandering the streets carless (laughs) because they're terrible drivers. And... Actually, if you're, say, for example, for whatever reason, you're high risk for home insurance, say that you're on a cliff or you're in a floodplain or something like that, and a lot of insurance companies don't want to take you on, they actually have a special pool where they all get together and they pretty much volunteer their services of who gets to take on Joe or Sally this time. And they take on you as a high risk and you pay more, yes, but you're paying for what you're, you deserve and what your services are, but they do insure you. So if you need fire insurance or home insurance and for some reason you're technically high risk, you don't get no insurance. Somebody does step up to the plate and they actually take turns as private companies. It's, a, it's an agreement that they all have. So they're not really being that forthright when they say that. And further, what I think the majority of British Columbians care about is the vast, vast majority of the normal and good drivers who are getting ripped off here compared to the normal and good drivers in Alberta. It's, it's just not fair. Well, and, and you mentioned the comparison, and I think that you're right. And this is what hits home for people, and it goes into specific cases. And a lot yep. of people can relate to this. Say you have a 30-year a driving record. Maybe you had one crash that you caused... Uh, During that time, you have a vehicle that you use to commute to and from work. Uh, In BC, you're paying more than two grand. In Alberta, in Calgary, you're paying almost $700 less, I think it was. I mean, it's just an amazing difference. It was a really good comparison. It was a lady that you're referring to there. That was a lady who is, I think, 45. She's living in Kamloops. She's driving her Toyota Camry to and from work. She has one at-fault accident, and keep in mind that could be going back way back, and 
her twin sister in Red Deer is paying about $700 less. Another one that jumped out for me, say you've got uh, Bill. He's 40 years old. He lives in Surrey. He drives his Ford F-150 for his small business. His cousin, his identical cousin in Calgary, driving the same Ford F-150, same driving record, same business level, pays around 650 less than he does in Surrey. The big one that was just staggering. Say you've got a couple. They're 45 years old. They're married. They're living in Langley. They have a learner in the family who's starting to drive, a teenager. They have a perfect driving record. Their identical family in Edmonton pays $800 less in auto insurance. Same people, same driving record, same vehicle, same usage, you name it. But here, we're getting screwed. Over there, they can shop around. Uh, So there was also the question raised about uh, comparing this to the private industry. And I heard someone raise the question, well, what happens if we compare it to another province that has... uh, public a public system like ICBC and the example given was Saskatchewan which is also a lot cheaper than the rates in BC but someone raised the point that the difference being Saskatchewan is a no-fault system and you're not suing people it takes all of uh, the yeah. legalese out of it uh, maybe that's a more fair comparison but it still gets us to the place where we're paying a lot more in BC Yes, and I would imagine that the driving is a little bit different. I think they picked Alberta because actually, apart from it being private with competition, which is obviously a huge boon to be able to have competition, comparatively, we're now much more similar to each other with the way that they've changed their injury caps, with the way people sue each other. We're quite similar. The difference, though, is that they have competition. Also, I kind of like the fact that we share the Rockies. And so we can be, it can be argued that we can have similar driving terrain because, of course, people will start making the jokes about Saskatchewan not having to make sharp turns, things like that. <laughs> uh, people who drive in Saskatchewan are great drivers. They need to drive in a ton of snow. Um, but I like the comparison of, of Alberta to B.C. But again, you could pick another province if you wanted to, but um, the Insurance Bureau of Canada picked Alberta because they're most comparison. Uh, so I recently had the joy of renewing my oh. insurance. Uh, for I drive a very old car. I have the full discount. I have a flawless driving record. It was still north of $1,600 to insure the vehicle. But get this. So we've been talking about this with David Eby, with our government. They're promising us all of these reforms. So while I was doing this, the lovely person at the insurance counter said, if you go and take a picture of your odometer and you physically come back here within the next few days and file it with us, and if you don't drive more than 5,000 clicks in the next year, uh, there's a chance you might be eligible for a 10% discount the next time you insure. And I thought... Okay, so not only are they now making it more cumbersome, because now if I want to do this, I have to go take a picture. I can't email it. I had to physically bring it back. And I thought, shouldn't it be a bigger discount if I drive more than 5,000K and don't have a crash? Doesn't that make me a better driver? <laughs> it does. And your odds are better. Yeah. Right? Like it keeps, it's like, it's like a plus minus average if you're an NHLer. Yeah. Because they always add up the ice time. <laughs> like if you're sitting there warming the bench, you can't say that you've got a better average. No. I just shook my head going, is this, this is what we're doing to make it better and to make it more affordable for people? It just seems insane. Yes, and another thing to be really cognizant of is there's this little pilot project that they're rolling out in uh, in a bunch of joy and and silliness for young drivers. 
that if you install a tracking device system in your car and allow the government to follow every turn you make, how you accelerate, how hard you corner, where you stop, where you park, they might consider giving you a discount too. Like for real, it's literally a tracking device by the state. Like, hello, (laughs) why is this? Why is this okay? It's not okay. And it's actually something they're considering for mobility pricing. It's a way of billing you for moving around, for being transitory in the Metro Vancouver area. And they're trying to roll it out quietly uh, under the guise of youth drivers and ICBC. So beware. Yeah. Uh, So what do you think? I know you've talked about ICBC as a co-op in the past. Uh, I've often said if if the minister says that ICBC is this gem and we need to keep it, then by all means, keep it, but open up the field to private. And if people don't want private insurance, those businesses won't thrive. They won't work and we'll have learned that. Uh, But what's the harm in bringing it here and at least giving people the option? Exactly. If ICBC is so awesome, let it compete. Open up the field, let it compete. Let people, consumers, drivers, you know, adults choose where they want to insure themselves and their vehicles while they drive around in BC. Other people do it throughout Canada. Why are we stuck with government owned monopoly on insurance? It's bizarre. I, I try to compare it. Imagine you're going out for your, you know, Saturday morning grocery shop. It's your big haul of the weekend, you know, and you're going out, you only have one store to go to. And it's run by the government. Imagine it. Imagine the kind of products you'd have. Imagine the prices. Imagine the hours. It would be horrible. But that's exactly what we have with ICBC. It's one-stop shopping, take it or leave it, and the government runs it. Well, no wonder we're getting hosed and paying way too much and the service is bad. And so this is why we're saying, fine, if people like ICBC, which for, you know, fine, they're attached to it, change it to a co-op. So that it's even better. You own it outright as a driver and a politician can't rate it anymore. They can't use it like an ATM. It's owned like a co-op, like a credit union. Then make it compete. That way we can take our option. We can either go with the credit union that you may or may not like, or you can go with the bank. Perfect. It seems like it makes sense. Um, My guess is that's not going to be happening uh, here anytime soon. Uh, Chris Sims, always great to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hang in there. Happy driving. (laughs) So anytime there is a crash on a bridge or a stall or one piece of the infrastructure somewhere in Metro Vancouver is taken out for whatever reason, you know that there is traffic gridlock. And I don't know about you, but when I get stuck in that, the first place my mind goes is what would happen if there was an actual emergency and we needed to evacuate? If we can't even deal with one bridge, one road being out of commission, how on earth would we ever be able to do this? and actually get out of an area because of imminent danger. Well, that is something my next guest has researched, and it was all because of an evacuation that took place in Port Alberni in January 2018, and that was following a tsunami warning that was triggered by an earthquake off the coast of Alaska. Uh, Let's bring in Ryan Reynolds, who is joining us now, postdoctoral researcher at the UBC School of Community and Regional Planning. Ryan, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me, Jill. So you looked at this and the process that happened in Port Alberni. How did you get all the information as far as what took place in those hours following the warning? Uh, my co-author and I basically did a three-pronged approach. So we spoke with 11 officials that are emergency management related with the city and the uh, Alberni-Cockwet Regional District. 
we spoke with door-to-door, about 111 residents in the community, mostly located in the inundation zone. And we had an online survey where we collected information from various residents, both in the zone and outside the zone, to kind of understand how they perceived that event that early morning. And how did people do? You know what? It sounds like it was a really successful event. We had 93% of the people that live in that inundation zone that were able to get out, which is, uh, I know it's not 100%, but, you know, it's early in the morning. We had to accept there's going to be some glitches. And uh, there were some glitches, but by and large, I think this is really a success. So 93% does sound Mm -hmm. good. Uh, The glitches, though. So what were the glitches? Well, we do know that there were some issues early on with communications. Um, We have issues where some people are looking for additional information to kind of confirm whether this is a real event or if it was an accident. And they were looking for that information online, and it it just wasn't ready for them online at the time they were looking for it. So uh, that's certainly an issue that the city itself has already started to address and that their their communication strategy is already improving since that time. Uh, Some of the other glitches included, like you mentioned earlier, traffic congestion. When you have hundreds of people evacuating the same area at the same time, there's a reality of, of just traffic being part of that. And, and that's going to happen anywhere, I would imagine, because unless you're going on foot and, and trying to get to higher ground, because in this case, we're talking about a tsunami warning. Uh, how do you deal with the, the, the fact that there's going to be a huge number of vehicles trying to go all go in the same direction? Yeah, there's a lot of different approaches that can be taken. In a community like Port Alberni, where it's in some areas it's a relatively short amount of distance you have to go to get to safety, that kind of traffic isn't such a big deal. But in other areas, it's a really significant concern as you need to drive deeper into that zone and then drive out. So some of the approaches that can be taken are what are called lane reversals, where we have all traffic lanes going in the same direction instead of in, in both directions. Uh, we can look at how traffic lights are coordinated, though for a smaller community that's a bit more expensive than most are willing to do. And we can also open up what are called uh, emergency evacuation routes. So these might be uh, trails or other routes that normally vehicles wouldn't be allowed to go on, but which could be opened up in the event of an emergency to allow that traffic just to escape. Uh, And and that's something too, we have these uh, evacuation routes. Do you think, do people know where you're supposed to go, what you're supposed to leave open for emergency crews to to make that go as, as smoothly as possible? Well, we know that in most communities on the island that are against the coast, people are at least generally aware of these kinds of risks and and that those lanes exist. But I think that we have to understand not everyone is a long-time resident of the island, that they aren't necessarily long-time residents even of their own community. And so raising that awareness kind of regularly and in many different ways is going to really help communicate that to, to residents and also visitors, which is another important area, especially in the summer. And you mentioned, too, getting back to that number. So 93 percent uh, mm-hmm. respondents of people. Do we know the other 7 percent? Do we know if it was people that didn't get the information or uh, we always see people in whether it's forest fires or some type of danger situation who choose to stay home anyway? Yeah, we know it was a little bit of both. We certainly heard from some people who managed to sleep through the entire event, and uh, they didn't hear the sirens of police cars and fire trucks going by. They didn't hear the emergency warning system, uh, and they didn't necessarily have their phone next to them to receive kind of text messages or something like that. So there is a small number of those people. Other people uh, were aware of the event but did not believe that they lived in the inundation zone, and therefore they chose not to evacuate, which is reasonable if you think you don't live in the zone, but that confusion is a little bit problematic from our standpoint. We need to actually let people know when they live in that zone and be very clear about communicating that information, again, regularly and very clearly. And I would imagine, too, there would be a number of people who also maybe just thought it was a false alarm. 
Yeah, we have had a false alarm in the community, I believe, back in 2006. So it's not like it doesn't happen. Um, but this is why we have that information-seeking behavior. People are going online to check what they're looking at, what their neighbors are doing before they make those decisions. And so the more we can do to get that message out that this is a real event is, is pretty urgent. But I would say anyone experiencing a tsunami warning siren going off, it's better to do that information seeking once you're already at a place of safety, because the times might be very short in the event of a, like a Cascadia earthquake. Right. Uh, did it also uh, to look at the, the infrastructure itself when we're talking about the broadcast towers? You mentioned the alarm. Uh, do, do we know now that there are enough of them to cover the entire area or, or is there room for improvement there? Well, we know that there's now uh, six uh, warning towers kind of a grandiose term, but yeah, these towers are located more or less throughout the entire inundation zone, and it looks like it's pretty good coverage. We'd hope to be able to see exactly where people were able to hear it well and where they weren't, but we just didn't necessarily have enough data to go through and, and confirm that. What I can say is I've been there for the tests, and they are really loud if you're really close, but we do have issues with the sound you know, attenuating or, or changing as it goes through the area due to vegetation or buildings, uh, especially kind of angled roofs can redirect that sound up and away from people. Hmm. Uh, because that's been an issue too, that the sound itself, I know Tofino in the past has taken a look at maybe using a different sound or making sure that whatever sound is chosen, people know uh, and have their ears trained that, okay, when I hear that particular sound, now I know that it's a tsunami warning. Yeah, and that training is really important. So when we do tests, we want people to know what the sound is going to be that they're going to experience. So when they actually hear it, it's automatically triggered for them, that they just know what to do. And in Port Alberni, we have an experience where they have, for a number of reasons, to test the system every month, they've chosen a different sound, which is a, a called didgeridoo sound, a, an Australian Aboriginal instrument. Um, and so there was some confusion about what that sound meant within the community when they actually heard the kind of air raid siren from the you know 60s and 70s because they weren't clear what that sound meant. So we, we would definitely recommend testing with the same sound that you use, but that's a, a discussion the community itself has to have. And if they choose to, to do that, sorry, two different sounds, they really need to be clear to the community about that. And, and what about first responders and their role in this? Obviously, they jump into gear as well when this is happening. Did this look at the role of first responders and if they were able to do their job? Yeah, we spoke with uh, fire officials and police officials in the community at the time, and their initial response, especially because this was 3 o'clock in the morning, was to enact their protocols, which meant driving through zone most at risk areas with their sirens and their loudspeakers uh, just to kind of reinforce the warning system if it wasn't heard in those locations and uh, to identify any problems especially traffic problems that they might encounter on the way so i think from their standpoint this was mostly just a, a precautionary action they weren't out there directing traffic or anything like that, but they were looking for any issues that might slow down or prevent an evacuation. And, and Julie, when you mentioned to 3 a.m., that's got to play a big role in that at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, the streets are pretty empty. There's not a lot going on. And most people would be home uh, when the warning went off. That's got to be a lot different than, say, if, if this happened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when people are at work, people are on the roads and uh, the community's awake. Yeah, in some ways it's really good because you have families generally all together. They can all evacuate as a single unit rather than having to go pick up kids or, or worrying about where their spouse might be located. But on the other hand, it's also 3 o'clock in the morning, and we are generally not at our best when we're woken up from a deep sleep. And 
you know, our thinking processes aren't necessarily working at 100%. So it's kind of a mixed blessing for us. All right. Well, interesting research and findings from that. Ryan, thank you so much uh, for joining us for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. We've been hearing more about the Safe Third Country Agreement, and it's a deal, if if you're not familiar with it, it's a deal between Canada and the United States in which both countries recognize each other as a safe country for asylum seekers to submit a claim. As part of that, asylum seekers must make their claim in the first safe country in which they arrive. That means an asylum seeker who lands in the United States must make a claim in the United States. Uh, They can't then head to a Canadian border checkpoint to submit Submit an application for asylum here. But there is a loophole that means the claimant can do that by being intercepted while crossing the border at an unofficial point of entry. And according to numbers obtained by Global News, it's estimated that more than 36,000 asylum seekers have entered Canada through these unofficial points of entry, so irregularly from the United States since the start of 2017. Uh, There have been many polls about this, asking Canadians what they think about this so-called loophole and what can be done given that the Safe Third Country Agreement is still in place. Well, Elizabeth May, as you know, is the leader of the federal Green Party. Uh, She has written about this uh, as well and joins us on the line to talk a bit more about this. Uh, Elizabeth May, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, happy to. Thank you, Jill. Uh, You've written about this or you put out uh, a release about this saying that turning people away at the border uh, is the same as building a wall. Uh, What was you put this out uh, for uh, people? What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that a country that recognizes the International Conventions on Refugees doesn't turn people away. There isn't, uh, before we had the so-called Safe Third Country Agreement, and by the way, years ago I practiced law and I actually used to represent a lot of refugees because I was practicing law in Halifax, and the refugees we got in those days were mostly from the Soviet Union, and they they were jumping from a ship, like not literally into the water, but they'd be on a crew of a Soviet vessel or a Yugoslavian vessel, and they just wouldn't go back. They'd say, here I am with the clothes on my back, I want to be a refugee. I need to stay in Canada. That's how a lot of people came to Canada who've built this country and done a lot of good in the world. But we seem to have taken a different attitude suddenly. And and the Safe Third Country Agreement is part of that was saying, well, you can't claim refugee status if you came through a country where you would otherwise be safe. It's a safe third country. You can't claim refugee status in Canada if you come here through the U.S. Uh, So what I meant by it being like a wall is that Trump wants to build a wall to keep out people who are coming across the border from Mexico. And uh, we wouldn't want to build a wall. We've we've got a a very, I think Canadians feel very good about the fact that we have an undefended, long, friendly border with the U.S. But suddenly we're willing to say to people, and by the way, the bulk of those people who came across as irregular entries from the U.S. were women escaping with their children from countries in Africa where they were internally displaced and then externally displaced. Uh, the refugee processing system still works. It's not as if they come to the border, cross through the bushes or across a frozen uh, a prairie landscape where they even get frostbite and lose limbs. I mean, they're taking their life in their hands to cross there. But when they cross, they don't just get to live in Canada. They go through a refugee determination process. And if they are not qualifying as refugees under the International Convention, they are then returned to their country of origin. So I think think some people have used, I know that uh, certainly the conservatives have used this issue 
as a way to stoke fears. And the response from the liberals is the wrong response. If we don't want people coming across the border irregularly, then what we have to do is revoke the safe third country agreement with the United States. So when people cross the border, they go to an office, as we always would do, and say, here I am. I'm a refugee. Crossing at an airport, crossing at a train station, crossing at a highway, normal ports of entry, you go to the immigration officer and say, I want refugee status. I can't go back to where I am. Uh, Do we not have to establish, though, that if somebody is coming across the border from the states, that they do, in fact, face being deported or sent home or they face hardship in the United States? Of course. But that has to be determined. You accept them across the border. They have refugee status. And then that hearing process, that determination process begins. So it's a harder threshold for sure. So you have to say, excuse me, you have, you have to, it's a higher threshold if you're coming through from the United States and say you were in any way settled there, you had a job there, you weren't an imminent threat. But if you're a displaced person and you've come on a route, your goal is Canada, and particularly given the administration's policies at the moment, which one can clearly say uh, are, are, you know, to have a Muslim ban proposed uh, it means that for pe- many people in the United States or people who've been living in the United States uh, with irregular um, citizenship papers, so people who've come in uh, maybe even years ago from Nicaragua or somewhere where they felt unsafe, they now feel unsafe in the United States. Uh, we should be willing to hear their case. These not, it's not a carte blanche. You don't just get to come in and stay. But deciding to say what we're now going to do is greet people at the border and turn them around and frog march them back in the United States. I, I don't think that, in, in the words of the uh, media coverage, closes a loophole. Uh, and nor do I think this is really a loophole. Uh, it's the way the Safe Third Country Agreement was structured. It's a bad structure, I agree. But I think we have to really examine how safe would you feel in the United States if you were a young Muslim man? Uh, how safe would you feel in the United States if you were a, 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 a single uh, woman from an African country with children and in the U.S. illegally? How safe would you feel? You'd really want to come to Canada if you possibly could and claim refugee status here. Uh, so I think one of the issues, too, though, and, and you mentioned this, is these the gaps. The people that are coming illegally across are not coming at border points uh, in, into Canada. They're coming across at uh, these irregular entries. So how do you stop yeah. that? Do you think then if, if we suspend the safe third country agreement, does that stop that? Absolutely. The only reason they're coming at irregular points, the only reason they're bushwhacking across uh, woods between New York State and Quebec, the only reason they're crossing uh, frozen uh, prairie landscapes in blizzards is that if they show up at a regular point of entry and say, I'm a refugee, they'll be turned away. So as soon as we say we're suspending the safe third country agreement, people will not be coming across uh, open landscapes. They will do the more sensible thing that doesn't risk their lives. <laughs> They'll go uh, uh, by highway or by airport or regular points of entry and say, I am in Canada claiming refugee status. And then they go through the process. And if they uh, believe me, I work on a lot of refugee cases as a member of parliament. I advocate for refugees who want to stay, and if I think they're good people and should stay, I work for them to be able to stay, and they're quite often rejected by the system anyway. So the system does work. It assesses whether a person meets the requirements of 
uh, international refugee standards, and if they don't, they are sent away. And, and the numbers we're talking about, although they sound big, remember we accept 300,000 people a year uh, to be permanent residents of Canada. We want more immigration. We have, it, it's from Vancouver, it's hard to, to, to feel the same way about it, but when I'm in places like uh, rural Saskatchewan or rural Nova Scotia, they want more refugees because they don't have children going to the local schools. They don't have enough economy happening. They don't have enough workers. So uh, good resettlement programs for refugees with language supports and so on would really help. I mean, we took a lot more Vietnamese boat people than we've taken in a very long time. Uh, there are moments in history when you say, well, uh, the the public policy reasons here and the compassionate reasons both point to we need more people. Our birth rates don't keep up with uh, with the requirements of our population, and and that's I'm sorry I have another phone ringing. I didn't realize this was going to happen right now. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Sorry, I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah, we're we're um, we're in a situation where. Canada needs more people, more workers, more children, uh, and to to get there, I think we have to recognize that accepting these people who will always be grateful to us because we saved their lives. If we say we're suspending the safe third country agreement with the United States, people aren't safe in the United States the way we thought they were when we first negotiated this, then people will only come through regular points of entry and go through the regular refugee system where they're thoroughly assessed. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We are out of time. Elizabeth May, thank Thank you so much. Great to chat with you this morning. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jill.